Hey everyone, this is Tom. Before we start this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, I need to let you know we're having our Device Talks meetings this fall. It's not going to be an in-person event. It's going to be our Device Talks Tuesdays program. Yes, this is just like our Device Talks meetings. We're going to have conversations about starting companies, raising capital, developing new essential devices, finding more effective ways to manufacture those devices and distribute them, navigate the changing regulatory and reimbursement pathways, and identify the next new hot tech. We're going to cover it all. All you need to do, you don't have to travel anywhere, no hotels, no airports, of course. You just have to go on to Device Talks. We're going to have each session up there for you. You can see what we're working on through September, but we're going to carry you all the way through the holidays and into the new year. Device Talks Tuesdays, it's a great way to continue to gather. We still need to talk. We still need to share ideas. We still need to hear from each other. And you're going to be able to do that on Device Talks Tuesdays. Go to Device talks.com. We have a great lineup of partners and sponsors are going to be putting together great content for you. So again, go to devicetalks.com to register for our Device Talks Tuesdays program. Now, let's get into this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salami, welcome back to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We've got two great interviews lined up for you this week. I'll be speaking with Karen Long. She is a managing director at KCK. It's a really emerging, has emerged actually, medtech investor. We'll talk about uh, her path into venture capital and also her uh, recent work in fundraising, which will be a topic of our Device Talks Tuesdays, which is coming up this Tuesday at 4 p.m. More on that later in this episode. I'll also speak with Gail Daubert. Gail is a founding partner of Forefront Strategic Partners. Gail is a CMS expert, and we'll talk with her about CMS's proposed rules and what you all need to do to make sure they happen. Very happy to report that my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, is back. Chris, I missed you so I'm much. Back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> I left, Tom. Taking a day but, off. How dare you, sir? How dare I? But yes. But you, you're paying for it this week. You are in, uh, in MDO handbook hell, right? Yes. We're going through about 30 to 40 what is and how to type of stories, but uh, definitely look out for that print edition. It's going to be, uh, it's, it's, it's always great every year that we do it. There's a lot of good, good information. I mean, it sounds like it's really robust and really informational. Yeah. So when does this come out? Definitely. When does this come out? Well, it's going to be uh, going to bed uh, the Friday after next. So it should be uh, hitting people's mailboxes like by the end of the month. And, uh, you know, when we, uh, of course, have this uh, posted digitally and all of the stories are, are going to be on our websites as well. So we're in fact, most of the stories are already on our websites. So, so definitely look out for it. Check it out. It's going to be great. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a, that's an important issue. So uh, I'm glad you're uh, I'm glad you're getting it out there. But I'm sorry you're you're paying the price right now. So before we get into this, it's what we have to do. It's what we have to do. <laughs> I guess it is our job providing that useful useful information for our readers. All right. Well, let's get this podcast on the road so you can get back to editing those essential stories. Before we get into our new markers, newsmakers. Glad to have that tag back. Uh, we wanted to nail down our uh, our Zoom call with our uh, Device Talks listeners. So to reiterate, this is an opportunity for Chris and I to sort of share this introductory Zoom call with you, our listeners. Chris and I are recording this on Zoom right now. We're staring at each other. Yeah. 
face to face. It's the only chance we really get to see each other since he's in Minnesota and I am in Boston. But uh, we would like very much for all of you to to be part of this, at least as many of you as, as want to be. So we're asking you to do this. If you have not linked with us on LinkedIn yet, please do so and provide us with your email address. If you are connected with us on LinkedIn, then please send along your email address and then we will simply take those email addresses, compile them, and include you on the Zoom invite. So this could be a massive gathering of thousands of MedTech enthusiasts, or you could have a real one-on-two with Chris and myself. Could go either way. What do you think, Chris? You know, I like the idea of the thousands. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to break Zoom. I think that should be our goal. I mean, an industry like ours, I mean, the stuff that's being developed is life or death. I mean, people, (laughs) this is is exciting (laughs) stuff. You, You can't miss this. Come on, come join us. Absolutely. So we'll do our we'll do our, our new markers, newsmakers. I said that correctly, and uh, and then we'll just have a wrap session with uh, with our listeners, which will be a lot of fun to do. So again, find us on LinkedIn, Chris. Where are you on, on LinkedIn? Hey, I'm on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, uh, just like a new marker, and I'm on Twitter at Newmarker, and always always love to chat with people. Great. And I'm uh, Tom Salami on LinkedIn. So find me there or on Twitter. I guess you could shoot an email to Twitter if you wanted to DM us, but uh, I am at MedTechTom. So either one, but let's try to keep it to uh, to LinkedIn and we'll make sure you're included on an invite for September 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's when we do this call every Thursday. It's a Thursday. So uh, cool. All right, Chris, let's uh, roll out this week's New Markers Newsmakers. What's number five? Hey, number five is that uh, FDA approved Medtronic's Minimed 770G insulin pump for young children. When I say young children, I'm you know, talking about uh, you know children two to six years old. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, this is an expansion of, um, of, of kind of like these hybrid closed loop diabetes management systems, you know, to, you know, provide them for, you know, even younger children. I mean, th- there was an earlier Medtronic uh, mini med model that was available for uh, kids that were seven to 13. Um, but, but yeah, even, even younger kids. Um, I know that, you know, Medtronic CEO, Jeff Martha and, uh, in their earnings call a week ago said that, you know, that, you know they, they had stuff they need to do in the, in the insulin pump space. Uh, but this is definitely good news for Medtronic, good news for parents that are, you know, that unfortunately have, uh, you know, little kids that have uh, type one diabetes and are, you know, looking for, you know, more answers to you know, try to manage it. Absolutely. And, uh, my heart goes out to those people who have to have kids who have to deal with this so young. So uh, that's uh, it's one of the reasons we like covering this industry is you, you see technologies like this getting to, to the people who need it. So yeah, exactly. Good number five. So what's our uh, our number four? Well, we had the good news and now there is a, a group of uh, IBM security researchers that say they uncovered a potential vulnerability in a software from uh, Thales that could affect insulin pumps. You know, they... Um, you know, and you know the, the software is used in several internet-connected devices. You know, also including like medical monitoring devices. So, so yeah, that'll that'll raise some questions. I mean, there's definitely um, you know cybersecurity is an issue that's not going away, and uh, well, yeah, you know, the, the the industry obviously still has to uh, to wrestle with it. All right, well, I'm going to have some uh, some questions regarding tech security when we get into question or item number three. But before we do, I want to have our first interview. We're going to have two interviews this week. First one, as I mentioned, is coming up. It's with Karen Long. Karen is a managing director at KCK Group, and uh, she is going to be actually on our Device Talks Tuesday panel coming up, which is called Raising Capital in the Zoom Age. It'll be Karen Long and Isaac Rowe of Thrive Earlier Detection. They have been, Karen's an investor. Isaac is an executive with company 
companies that have raised, gosh, uh, over close to $400 million over the summer during the time of, during the COVID era, during the time of Zoom. And on Tuesday, we're going to be talking about how you can position your company best for raising money in these unusual times. So I had the opportunity to catch up with Karen Long, talk a bit about her interesting career. She actually had a, a, a career start. I think that was a first for me in the venture capital industry. So uh, I don't want to give away too much. So uh, when we get back from this, uh, this conversation with Karen Long of the KCK Group, we'll pick up New Markers Newsmakers at number three. Karen Long, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. So I want to get into what you do and, and learn a little bit more about your group you're with, KCK, but I don't think I'm exaggerating. If I, if I think of all the VCs I've interviewed, I'm not sure if I've talked to one who had a start in social work, or at least that was an early part of their, of their bio. Curious how that transition went from, uh, from, did you actually work in the field or did you just study it? And how did you transition to where you are today? No, thanks for asking. I, 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 you're probably right. I'm probably one and only. <laughs> I actually practiced uh, social work. I'm a licensed clinical social worker uh, trained in San Diego, but I practiced for six years at both in the hospital-based setting, both at Stanford uh, Medical Center, Stanford University Medical Center, and San Jose Medical Center, two trauma centers. So I focused on trauma, specifically on sudden loss and grief. And I was the counselor for the families anytime there was something highly unexpected and profound happening for that family. And so it was one of the most tremendous experiences of my life, still probably my favorite job, getting to be with families in that kind of intimate experience in a crisis inside a hospital setting and certainly at a young age that it it impacted me and it shaped who I was as a person and kind of what I would want to do with my career. Do you find yourself tapping into some of those experiences? Did it make you more empathetic than perhaps you might have been? It does. I think it's always led me to being patient focused. So, you know, I always think about the patients are waiting. The patients are waiting for this treatment. The patients and their families are waiting to get better, to live, to survive, to have quality of life. And so I think I am always thinking about the patient perspective when we're working with companies and bringing in technologies. Yeah, that's very rarely talked about in any timelines. When you talk to investors, it's all about exits or commercialization or milestones. Uh, do you actively keep patients in your in your thoughts, I guess, and you're thinking about a company and about a product development? I, I absolutely do. And it, listen, uh, you know, running a business and doing great things for patients are not mutually exclusive. You can do both. And so I think about milestones um, and I think about funding the same way everybody else does. But you have to constantly check back and ensure that you're delivering a product, a therapy that is going to be meaningful pe- to people at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think I can do is help always have that check-in. Does this still matter? Is this something people care about? Will it be meaningful? Will it make a difference in their lives? Um, And still have a great business. That's great. Super important. How did you ultimately find your way into the med tech industry? You you worked on the the operational side for a time at a startup and then at J&J. The med tech industry found me. They, um, there was a company in the San Francisco Bay Area diagnostic company, home diagnostics called Chemtrack, and they were working on the first home HIV test, which was meant to be a simple 510k test that you would take like a pregnancy test. And this was in the late 90s. And what they soon found out was that the FDA said, oh my gosh, we don't even have treatments for HIV. You need to deliver this news. You can't deliver this news like a pregnancy test. You actually have to deliver this news through a healthcare professional. And as part of the company, we are going to mandate that this is now a PMA and that you have licensed therapists deliver this information of a positive test result, which at that time could mean 
could mean, you know, the end of your life. Wow. And so they came looking for people who had experience breaking bad news. And I happened to be teaching a class at Stanford uh, Medical School uh, under that same name with two two colleagues from Stanford. No way, really? And that was the course? It was a course for medical students to learn how to tell families. It was a multidisciplinary course course taught with a, a physician and another colleague there. That's wonderful. And so they ended up finding me, finding a psychiatrist at Stanford. And long story short, I ended up joining that company and leaving social work. And that was the start of really a vast experience working in all kinds of parts of the operation, but starting with regulatory and being the liaison to the FDA on that product. That's amazing. I want to I want to move on to KCK, but I just, I love those moments where someone has the option of just taking a very different path. How, how difficult was it to take that very different path to leave social work behind and to go into something completely different? Was that uh, an easy decision or a hard one? Um, it became an easy decision because at that time I wasn't really leaving social work behind. I was, instead of working with one patient or family at a time, I was going to work with potentially tens of thousands and millions of people. And I still was, you know, we set up a counseling center. I hired uh, licensed social workers to run the center. And so I still, it was, it was close enough where it still felt super familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, yet I felt I could touch more lives and have a bigger impact. That's interesting. That's a, that's uh, similar to what you hear from a lot of physicians who go into work for larger medical device companies or such that they can treat many more patients than they could as a physician. So that's a, uh, Interesting comparison. So then how did you end up getting into med tech operations? I know you were with a, a client for a time and then J&J when that was acquired. I was. Well, it was, you know, after Chemtrack, after that diagnostic company, I went to the largest diagnostic company through an acquisition. I had another startup and that was J&J and LifeScan. And so I spent many years at LifeScan working in diabetes, which is the largest home test that you can think about. And then from J&J, I left to join Eclarent. And Eclarent is really, was a great opportunity to build, come in early, build, help build disruptive technology, which is really my passion, like the home HIV test, frankly, doing something that hasn't been done before. And my goal coming to Eclarent was to bring that patient perspective again and help physicians learn how to talk to patients and market to patients so that patients would come in and utilize the technology. And so my career was mostly spent on, I'll call it, it started on the clinical side, clinical marketing, and then, you know, J&J trained me to be a very traditional marketer and, a, and I think a good one. And, and that's what I did at Eclarent. And, and really most of my career has been on the commercial side of the business. And then after that, you went back or you went to Explore Med, which was where Clarent uh, was uh, started. Uh, was that, did you just want to get into starting a company, get on the ground floor or something? I did. Well, I had such a good experience at Clarent and it's all about the people at the end of the day. And I had a, the great fortune of getting to work with Josh McHour, Dr. Josh McHour, who started Clarent and, and many other companies um, that we know in the med tech space. And I, I did. I wanted to start a company from the ground floor, and he had a couple of really interesting ideas, all stemming from this place of, of patients again. What's the, where's the greatest unmet need, and where are, are, are frankly patients being ignored or technology being ignored? So I joined them and and started working on a women's sexual health company, which eventually I ran as the CEO. And how was that experience uh, to run a company of your own? That's quite a departure from where you were in the in the late nineties. It was, you know, there's a lot of years in between. Luckily, <laughs> I had a lot of different experiences to to help guide me. You know what? It, it, nothing can prepare you for what it's like to 
to run a company and especially a, a startup early stage company from fundraising all the way through how do you get your first sale of your product. But the fundamentals that I learned and the other experiences really, really helped. And so it was an exciting, super challenging of going into a space that had an enormous challenges, a very you know, sometimes taboo space, um, but it was great. And I had a great team around me. And that's, again, that's what it's all about. And we ended up selling that company after our first year of commercialization to a pharmaceutical company. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to take a break from running a company and, and maybe think about what the next phase of life will bring, which brought me to KCK. That's terrific. So let's talk a little bit about KCK. Uh, we've come to know over the last couple of years, it's uh, becoming an increasingly important player and MedTech's already an important player. Tell us a little bit about how you came to join and then uh, what is KCK's focus uh, in the industry? What sort of companies do you invest in? Yeah, I came to join KCK. Um, you're going to hear a common thread. It's the people. Because <laughs> of the people that were there, um, the senior managing directors, Greg Garfield, Greg and I were, were peers at a Clarence. We were colleagues there. And so we had spent, after you spent five years, six years together, you develop a strong relationship and I wanted to be where Greg was. And so I joined um, first as an executive in residence thinking I might want to run a company again. I needed a few months off, but that I might want to. But once I, I dug into the work and started spending more time with companies, what I really liked was getting to spend time with multiple companies. And so in the end, I decided, decided to join the firm permanently. Sounds like a familiar theme. You get to you get to help many companies instead of just one, right? It is. It is. So what is uh, what are type of companies are you looking to invest in at KCK? And, and what are the origins of uh, uh, your, your funding? Where does it come from? Yeah. So KCK MedTech division is a division of KCK Group, um, which is a larger single family office evergreen fund. The MedTech Group is a, a small group based in Silicon Valley. The rest of KCK is based throughout Bermuda, London, and New York. Our group focuses solely on medical device companies and pretty traditional, I call traditional and now growth stage medical device companies. Although we have an interest like everybody else in the digital health movement, although we haven't made any investments in that space yet. But the company, the firm, the MedTech firm is less than five years old. There's three managing directors. So there's a group of us who sit on the boards of over a dozen companies now um, that we've deployed capital into. And then we have a great team with us that helps us looking at new opportunities and also helps us on the boards. And you're looking primarily at uh, commercial stage or growth stage or what's what's the earliest you might go? Yeah, it's changed. I mean, we, in the early days, early, meaning four years ago, we made investments in kind of preclinical first in man kind of companies. Um, so we still have some of those companies in our portfolio. So very early stage, long PMAs, probably in the last two and a half years since I've joined and a couple other people have joined with more commercial experience, we've started putting our attention on commercial stage companies and really deploying our capital in that way. We, we are a large funder. Our typical investments run anywhere from 10 to $40 million around. And so when you start to talk about that size capital, we really want to put that to work on, on commercial teams. And you have uh, had some success lately raising capital. Your, your companies ha have, and we'll be talking about that on Tuesday on our Device Talks Tuesdays, talking about raising money in the Zoom age or in the COVID era. Talk a little bit about the, the two recent success stories, Aaron and, uh, and Neuropace, which was just announced this week. Yeah, well, we've had two, those two companies have been in our portfolio for a few years now, which is great. Um, 
And they both were able to raise tremendous rounds. Uh, Aaron Medical raised 48 million and Neuropace raised 67 million, all in the COVID era. And these are growth rounds. They're both commercial stage companies, have been commercial for a few years now, and these are really to drive um, further adoption. And so I'm really proud of both of those companies. They start with leadership. We actually, actually, Duralpace is run by an ex-KCK executive managing director who is now running the team, Mike Favitt, but just did a really nice job. Uh, the companies have done a nice job. The teams have ni- done a nice job and um, good companies can get funded. And that's, that should be the takeaway message. How have you been working with your companies during this, uh, the past six months? How are you more involved with them or at least communicating with them more than you were before? Are you kind of staying back and letting them figure stuff out? What's the role of an investor during this time when, frankly, it's it's uncharted territory for everybody, really? Yeah. What's unique about KCK is that every single one of us is a former operator. And so we, we've been in their shoes. We've done those jobs before. And so we, we're always active with our companies. But when COVID hit, we became incredibly active. And so mm-hmm. This is, it's not unusual for us to talk to companies, you know, daily when COVID was first hitting to try to assess what is happening in the world, what's happening in the market, how should we adapt our thinking in our companies. And then as we've been coming out of it and we're seeing businesses really starting to thrive again, um, looking at what does growth look like and hence fundraising. And so I would say we've been really active. There's, as you know, everybody's on Zoom. So we see mm-hmm. our companies all the time now. I see them much more than I did before uh, by video, of course, but we're highly, highly engaged with our companies and our companies really appreciate the fact that we can not only advise and guide, but we can actually lend a hand when they need it. That's great. I know you're going to give a, a lot of uh, advice and, and thoughts on Tuesday, but uh, if uh, if there's a CEO of a new company out there listening and they want to get information to you or to other investors, I mean, is there any trick to doing that now than perhaps before? Are you more inclined to take a cold email from someone because you're we're all at our desk all day, kind of just looking for ways to network and to reach out? Yeah, we're still super active. We are looking at many companies every single week. We've not only made those investments in our own portfolio, but we've made another investment in the stealth company during COVID as well. And that's the first time we've made an investment while uh, not meeting the team in person. Mm. So that was an, you know, it's an interesting dynamic in and of itself. Um, But what I would say is, yes, reach out to us. We're looking at, we're looking at deals. We're still, fundamentals are the same. We're still looking for great companies, disruptive technology, really good teams. I mean, this in COVID is a time where teams matter more than ever. Mm. The people really matter. And so teams um, have always been important, but I would say it's an area that I really focus on now. But we're looking at companies and we're, we have the ability to take these Zoom calls and take pitches that would have normally took a lot of travel and a lot of time to plan that we can do in half hour, 45 minutes, and at least have an introduction and see if it makes sense to continue. That's great. And you mentioned this is a stealth company. So this must be an earlier stage startup. I imagine it's hard to have any other kind than being stealth. It is. is. (laughs) Excellent. Well, that's good to hear. All right. Final question is one I've started asking. Are you on social media at all? Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm on both. Uh, So you can find me there. Um, My Twitter is klonglcsw, an ode back to licensed clinical social worker. Yay. (laughs) Exactly. And then you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Karen Long under KCK. 
Excellent. And of course, they can uh, tune in on Tuesday. We'll have you and Isaac Rowe of Thrive Earlier Detection talking about uh, raising money during these uh, these very odd times. So I'm sure it'll be a helpful conversation. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. All right, and we're back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karen Long. Again, join us on Tuesday, Device Talks Tuesdays. It's happening at 4 p.m. Eastern. Go to devicetalks.com to register. You not only will hear from Karen and Isaac uh, directly, and you'll be able to ask them questions on our uh, On24 platform, which allows you to submit written questions while I'm talking to them. But we're actually going to have a, uh, a unique opportunity to talk to them directly on a Zoom call that will follow both Isaac and Karen. I've agreed to uh, switch over to Zoom so we can have some face-to-face conversations. You can tell them about uh, about your story. Uh, you can ask them questions directly, and uh, it'll just be a great opportunity for uh, for folks to socialize. So remember, go to devicestocks.com to register. Now let's get back into this week's New Markers Newsmakers. Chris, what is number three on the list? Number three on the list is Elon Musk. And, uh, you know, the news is he's going to make pacemakers on Mars. <laughs> no, but I mean... <laughs> Um, you know, and he's, uh, what about a solar paneled Elvis? Oh, goodness. Like you could. You could hold the panel as long as the panel's in the sun, your LVAD will work. You know, but your arm might get tired. Seems foolproof uh, to uh, me, Chris. Could, could not it's, fail. It's a great idea. You know, number th- no. Uh, the the news is, I mean, actually, uh, the, the real news is that uh, Musk has had a venture called Neuralink, and it's been about deep brain uh, stimulation. And uh, you know, there hasn't been. Uh, it's mostly been described in broad strokes, but then um, we had a, a you know there was a webcast recently in which Musk really like delved into some details about the system and you know it's uh, it's definitely interesting i mean it's like a small device rechargeable battery uh that can last a full days i mean you get like wires embedded in the cortical surface of the brain recording like 1024 channels of neural signals at mm-hmm. once uh you know he even uh they even uh like ran out some pigs that you know had these implants in them um you know so i mean yeah really really interesting i mean musk is making a, a play in the uh in the uh you know deep brain stimulation space and uh i have i have this image of these star trek borg pigs coming out on the stage and having the red laser eyes but yeah, uh, i'll have to admit this may this this may hurt our chance to get elon musk on the i think podcast, we should get elon musk on the podcast yeah, th- i think i i i may i may damage that by suggesting this concerns me a little bit putting something in my brain like this i'm not comfortable with it but uh but hey i'm really old so you know it'll it'll be in you know interesting in in the future you know as 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 we do get more you know less invasive stuff you know it, it will be interesting like i mean okay if you know how how many people i mean i don't think a lot of people these days would be comfortable with the idea of like oh i want this minimally invasive implant in my brain that's going to help me answer my email all the time but <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, probably are, you know, like people of, you know, more advanced generations right now kind of like, you know, look at people at our age group and less and ask, you know, like, well, you know, well, why do you spend all your time on social media and, you know, do all this kind of stuff? So I, I don't know. Well, it, it'll, there'll be some interesting questions for how people live in the future. And I've, I've, I've started to notice more feature articles talking to philosophers and, you know, talking to futurists and everything kind of like asking 
asking where this is going to go. But uh, but uh, if if it is going to go in that direction someday, it looks like Elon Musk is uh, enabling it in some ways potentially. I guess the real risk is if you connect this to social media, then people might just you know put really crazy things out there, and that would be horrible, wouldn't it, Chris? Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> not not a problem now. No, no, sir. you don't see any tweets where people are sending out <laughs> stuff unthinking. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to number two. I'm getting the heebie-jeebies. What's number two number on two. our new markers newsmakers list? Yeah, number two was uh, the, was really really interesting SEC filing. I mean, yeah, you don't usually hear that. It was a really interesting Securities and Exchange <laughs> Commission filing. But no, I Medtronic, you know, was outlining you know a major a major restructuring. I mean, during their earnings call last week, uh, their CEO Jeff Martha was you know talking about the new Medtronic, how they you know kind of wanted to have this more like nimble company that you know, really, you know, was working to, you know, gain market share, you know, which is really hard when you got like the world's largest medical device company. And, you know, this week we found out like, yeah, like part of that's going to be, you know, really restructuring the business. You know, they didn't say how much, but they acknowledged like, you know, there will be people who, you know, are you know going to lose their jobs, you know, amid this, you know, get laid off. But, but yeah, they're looking at, you know, reaching, you know, 450 million to 475 million in uh, savings a year by, uh, by 2023. So, so like really big restructuring over at Medtronic and kind of the idea is to, you know, take the company's current groups and kind of reorganize them into like the, the quote they use was highly focused, accountable and empowered operating units. And the operating unit leaders would have full responsibility for profits and losses and really like drive those different parts of the business. So we'll, um, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, when a, when a corporate leader uses the word nimble, yeah, in a quarterly call, that that can go two different ways, I think, and uh, and this certainly is one of them. So we'll see what the uh, what the cuts look like. I mean, that was a really interesting call from the way it was presented on on video, but also just uh, just the change in tone uh, in Mark in Medtronic. We talked about that on the podcast a bit last week with Kayla Crum of Truist Securities. So uh, it's going to be uh, we'll we'll see where where uh, where the numbers fall in terms of cuts, but uh, hopefully it uh, won't be too severe for uh, for those Medtronic employees out there. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna change things up a little bit in the past. In past podcasts, we normally save number one for the end of the podcast. But actually, our final interview with Gail Daubert of Forefront Strategies is gonna deal with the number one issue. So, Chris, why don't we hit the number one right now, and then we'll bring up our second interview of the podcast. Yeah, the number the number one story, the one that's really getting the most most views on Mass Device this week is that uh, is that a CMS agreed to cover breakthrough medical devices. Um, and so, anytime that's big news for the industry, whenever you have some, the, the nation's largest you know healthcare payer like expanding you know, what they're willing to pay mm-hmm. for. And, and, you know, and in the past, um, you know, if you had a breakthrough device, you could go around the country and get, you know, uh, different um, dates or areas of the country un- under different me- Medicare administrative contractors to cover this. I um, mean, you know, I've, I've been at conferences where I had people in reimbursement, like going through like the whole, like, yeah, we, we tried this area, we did this, and this is our strategy. I mean, so that, I mean, overall, this looks like this really, this can really simplify that process for companies that have like these breakthrough devices. I'm really interested to hear. Uh, from Gail Darber. Yeah, she's uh, she's an interesting uh, person. She started off actually as a, a nurse. She was an OR nurse and uh, then decided to go to law school and uh, became a wow. partner at Reed Smith. She helped kind of lead their healthcare practice and uh, recently f- co-founded uh, Forefront Strategic Partners, which is uh, a full service strategic reimbursement firm. So she and I talked for a long time, actually, just about the fact, number one, that this is good news. Number two, this is still just very much a proposed rule. And uh, she is advising people to 
to let their their voices be heard and to make sure that this is as beneficial as possible. And number three, we go through some of the uh, things that companies will need to to think about going forward. So I'll I'll get into the uh, the interview in a second, but I promised Gail that I would give this up front. If people go to regulations.gov they'll be able to find the submit a comment instructions on the website and they can search for the rule using CMS 3372P or use the title proposed Medicare coverage of innovative technology. So we'll uh, post a lot of this on our uh, show notes as well, but uh, it's not done yet, folks. I mean, this is a proposed rule. It's good news, but uh, we all need to uh, to push forward and get this one over the, uh, over the goal line. So now, yeah. Now let's hear from uh, Gail Dauber of Forefront Strategic Partners. Gail Dauber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. I wanted to find out a little bit about your background, looking at your LinkedIn profile. You started out as a nurse in, uh, I think, the operating room and then became an attorney after that. I love hearing about those transitions. How did you go from one important profession to another? It, it is a good question, and I get asked that question fairly frequently. And they're both related because being a nurse, you're helping patients, you know, making sure they're getting the treatment they need. And really, the transition was mainly in order to help patients get the treatment they need. Working in the OR and then transitioning and doing a bit of clinical research, I learned that many payers considered what we thought was standard of practice because we were doing the surgeries every day and expected it to be covered by insurance. I learned that that's not the case huh. and that's not the case fairly frequently. So that's that started my journey. I had a master's in health law and, you know, a week into the class decided, what am I going to do with a master's in health law? <laughs> I should just go to law school. So <laughs> I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked on uh, Capitol Hill for a bit, drafting a Patients' Bill of Rights Act for Senator Grassley. Wow. Then was fortunate enough to made a pitch to Reed Smith on engaging me to help them build out their healthcare practice. Were you still uh, energized by, by nursing or were you ready for, for a change? No, still energized and still am. I actually worked at Sibley Hospital in Washington, D.C. while going to law school. Oh, okay. Um, Initially got a little bit of pushback from the surgeons, wondering if I was taking notes during the <laughs> procedure, and I assured them that I was on their side. And uh, before the, you know, before I finished law school, you know, they were asking me what the topic of the day was going to be for the dis you know, discussion in the OR. So that's great. So, talk a bit about what you're doing now. You've uh, you're you've co-founded a new firm, Forefront Strategic Partners, and we'll get into the proposed CMS rule in a moment. But I just want to understand what uh, what your new your new step is. Sure. So I have I worked for Reed Smith for 22 years. Great law firm. Grew into a very large global firm, and I had gone through a serious many serious personal um, events in the year leading up to leaving Reed Smith it culminated in the, the death of my husband. Oh my goodness, I'm sorry. And uh, I, I needed a break. And so I you know, had planned on retiring 
And, you know, I just couldn't quite get there. I left Reed Smith and received calls from clients who said, I need your help. Can you walk us through this? And since the pandemic occurred, I mean, I was staying home anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It led to the formation of Forefront Strategic Partners. I'm fortunate to work with some of the people that I worked with at Reed Smith. Yeah, we're kind of excited to be involved in all of this. And, you know, with the recent Medicare proposals, it's been a very interesting time and a very busy time. Excellent. Now your, your timing for that is is, uh, is great. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the most recent proposal that came out this week, uh, the proposed rule for breakthrough technologies. Please break that down. Pretend I don't know what it actually means because I actually don't. <laughs> what does it mean for, uh, for companies that are developing med tech? It, it's always a challenge. If you're a truly new technology, generally there's no... You need three components for reimbursement, codes, coverage, and payment. Together, people refer to them as having reimbursement for the product. So if you're a breakthrough technology, that means that you're a new device that there's no predicate for your treating or fulfilling an unmet clinical need for patients. And it's important then to make sure you have the ability to get a new code appropriate payment, and then usually the 800-pound gorilla is how do you obtain coverage for this new technology that's usually associated with a new procedure that is not described by an existing CPT code, which is the mechanism by which providers put a code on a claim, submit it to the insurance. The insurance company then takes a look at the code and then submits reimbursement back to the provider, the healthcare provider. So what will this proposed rule, how will that change what's been done? So this proposed rule is going to ensure that if it's adopted as proposed, will ensure that completely new breakthrough technology will be covered by Medicare. In other words, they've, they've covered perhaps the most challenging component. And in the proposed rule, they also discussed that they've added in previous rules opportunities to obtain new payment. The only thing missing now is they need to set up a process to establish a code that describes the new technology procedure. And I'm sure that many startup companies and even well-established companies will most likely be commenting on that process. There needs to be an easier way to obtain a billing code to report and get paid for the procedure. And Coding is the one missing component right now. So if, if I'm CEO of a company developing a, a new technology, it doesn't mean that I'm automatically in line for reimbursement from Medicare, but what, what does it mean? How does this make my life easier? Well, if it's adopted, once you obtain a, a billing code, then you will have an assurance that as the claim is processed, the provider Uh, will be more likely to embrace the adoption of the new technology because they know that there there is a code. There's going to still be this delay unless CMS modifies it to set up a billing code in conjunction with the expanded coverage. 
otherwise, you know, Medicare is proposing to provide coverage on the same date as FDA marketing authorization is received. And that's going to be problematic because the, the shortest time frame to obtain any type of billing code is about four months, five months. So they're going to, Medicare will start the clock ticking on FDA mm-hmm. approval or marketing authorization. And they'll be sitting there. They, they'll know, you know, they will be able to tell a good story that once they have a code, it will be paid, covered, and the hospital should get reimbursement. But I think there's still going to be a bit of a delay and startup companies are still going to have to figure out how to get that code or should begin advocating for a streamlined coding process today. So per this proposed rule, if my technology gets FDA approval, that automatically puts me on the clock to get CMS reimbursement? It, it, it puts you on the clock to get Medicare coverage. And coverage means that the procedure is reasonable and necessary, and patients should have access to it. The problem is, is that the, the healthcare providers communicate to insurers and to Medicare by reporting billing codes on an electronic claim form in most instances. Mm-hmm. If that CPT code or HICPA, PICS code that describes that procedure is already loaded into the payer's system, so to speak. It will generally have a payment rate associated with it, and it will generally be flagged that it's covered or non-covered. So it may, if it's non-covered, it gets kicked out and the payer sends their response back to the provider. It's non-covered for reasons such as we don't view this as reasonable and necessary or safe and effective or experimental and investigational. And those are all legitimate concerns. Um, So medical device manufacturers are still going to need a code, a special Mm -hmm. code to put on that claim in order to have the process run smoothly. I think it's a, this is a, a great improvement in the process. So I, I applaud what CMS has done. I think there's still, you know, that one missing piece. And I, w- I would have liked to have seen that they included or at least mentioned the fact that they would address coding for the new device in a separate rule or, you know, they're considering options because I think that's the one major um, uh, component that was not addressed in this rule. But are devices or device makers guaranteed a code at some point or are there still going to be instances where a company may not be able to get a code from Medicare for reimbursement? I would assume that Medicare would feel the need that they must create a code to describe the the procedure. Mm -hmm. If not, it would be very challenging for them to defend why they established coverage coverage at the beginning of the FDA approval without creating a mechanism to report that technology slash procedure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the main body that establishes coding for healthcare providers, physicians, surgeons, hospital outpatients, ASCs, is the AMA CPT editorial panel. And they have very specific criteria and, and they may be willing to adopt new criteria for establishing coding, but right now a new technology would not qualify for a traditional CPT, we call it category one billing code. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is the way the AMA values a procedure is by conducting a survey of physicians who have performed the procedure in order to determine the amount of skill and time that it takes to furnish that procedure to a patient. So, you know, it's, it's still going to be a little bit of a, a challenge until we have uniform uh, mechanism to establish a billing code concurrent with the new proposed coverage upon FTA marketing authorization. So if I'm a company developing a, an innovative technology, am I guaranteed now to get Medicare coverage by this ruling? Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Just they need to understand there are still going to be a few hurdles. And while they won't be in that valley of death, as it's often referred to, they, they will still have challenges. And there are opportunities available uh, requesting designation mm-hmm. as a new technology service. It's a process that CMS has in place today and could easily be modified to facilitate implementation of this proposed rule for coverage. And I would love to see CMS connect the dots here to make it much more clear to innovators that a process exists that can be used that will greatly streamline the overall process of getting new technology procedures to the marketplace and to the patients that need it. So, and how are, how will this likely impact getting reimbursements from private payers? Are they more likely to pay for a technology if that CMS coverage is in place? That's a great question. And I would say generally, yes. However, and there's always a caveat when you're talking about such a dynamic uh, regulatory process. And and that is, we find more and more that if a new technology is being developed, and the, let's say, medical startup is publishing results as they're being obtained, kind of calling attention to the fact that this new um, technology will become available, so patients can, can anticipate a potential treatment, cure, whatever for their problem, sometimes the commercial payers, insurers, will get out in front. And so even though all of the data has not been provided to them or has not yet been published, they will move forward and Mm -hmm. create a non-coverage policy for a technology, even though it has not yet been approved and there would be no chance of a patient receiving that technology, 
And my concern is if Medicare relies heavily on commercial insurers to cover new technology or uses that as a proxy for reasonable and necessary, that's going to be some that that could potentially be a problem for innovators. And one thought would be for CMS to indicate to private payers or state that they will not rely on uh, private payer coverage policies that have been created pre-FDA approval. And I think that would help solve a lot of the problems that may come up if this proposed rule is implemented the way it is today. So you have a great breadth of experience in, in, in sort of seeing the other side, how seeing how the legislation is, is created and just an overview of the process. Where What happens next? So the proposed rule is open for comment. Any interested party can go on the CMS website or Federal Register website and submit comments and highlight what they like about the proposed rule, and their concerns or recommendations for changing some of the information in the proposed rule. And I would encourage, particularly startups or anyone developing a technology that may be considered a breakthrough technology to weigh in on this rule. Uh, Comments are, uh, CMS is receiving comments for 60 days after which they will take some time to digest all the feedback they've received. And then CMS will publish a proposed rule and proposed rule rule will, I'm sorry, the final rule will be published most likely in January of 2021. And they will announce the effective date um, as a general rule They try to make the effective date concurrent with publication, but if systems need to be changed, they will also say this rule will be effective three months from this date or they'll announce a date. But the good news is, is right now there's an ideal time for stakeholders, interested parties, if you're a medical device, particularly an innovator, to weigh in uh, to CMS and provide thoughtful and um, reasonable comments that would improve this policy. And like I said, I think it's a great step forward. It needs a little bit of refinement and um, I think it will greatly benefit both patients and encourage more innovation in the medical device world. Interesting. Okay. But for now, you're, you would advise people to offer their comments as to how the uh, the rule could be improved. And you've offered a few of those those suggestions already. Are you, are you hearing from a lot of uh, clients about this? Is it a lot of people interested in the outcome? Yes. Yes. Very interested and overall supportive. I think having lived from, uh, you know, looking at it from the perspective of the innovator, it's a slightly different lens and through no fault of its own, I think there's just certain things that Medicare in drafting this proposed rule may not have have thought about. Having the ability for coding may be one. Maybe they plan on adding 
that, layering that into the final rule. You know, I we've also I've also represented clients who, upon FDA approval, have not been able to market their device for a variety of different reasons. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, maybe there should also be some sort of flexibility in the start date. Oftentimes, you know, small startups need to consider expanding or modifying manufacturing facilities. Uh, they, they, you know, if it's a wireless technology, maybe they need to lock down a new bandwidth for their technology. There are all kinds of small things that need to be addressed after FTA approval that may result in it not being immediately marketed. And so I would uh, modify the language slightly or recommend to CMS that they modify it slightly until the date of uh, first sale of the product or the date that the manufacturer indicates that they're going to begin marketing the device. It's not unusual for um, small companies to have to, you know, identify sales reps and conduct uh, physician training. And sometimes these also, you know, take (laughs) a fair amount of time. And so, you know, I would just hope that there would be a little bit of flexibility in the start time. Terrific. Well, I appreciate your, your taking the time. Um, it's good to have you uh, on the case, so to speak, uh, as all these changes go through. And uh, sorry about the, the your personal tragedies, but uh, very best of luck with, uh, with, with Forefront. It sounds like uh, you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate that. All right, we're back. Well, thank you, Gail Darber, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Karen Long from KCK for not only joining us on the podcast, but also joining us on Device Talks Tuesday, which is coming up on September 8th. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Once again, folks attending will have the opportunity to uh, meet with both Isaac Rowe of Thrive Early Detection and Karen Long of KCK on a, uh, a post Device Talks Tuesday Zoom call. So uh, you'll be able to uh, speak with them directly. It should be a lot of fun. Chris, maybe you could join us on the call as well. Having another celebrity at the on the Zoom meeting doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. Sounds great. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a link. I'll be you there. You have to register. I'll get you the link. Oh, you're so generous, <laughs> I'm a <Tom>. giver. <laughs> so speaking of giving, Chris, give us, uh, we got him at the top of the, the show. But once again, where can folks find you on Twitter? You know, people can find me on Twitter at Newmarker. And uh, yes, I'm on LinkedIn. Chris Newmarker. So just like a just like a new marker. I never use that phrase. <laughs> I'm on both as well. Tom Salami on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Once again, September 17th, 3 p.m. Eastern. Chris and I will do one of these silly calls to to record our intro for the podcast. But then we'd love to talk to uh, <laughs> folks out there. So shoot us your email. Connect with us on no. LinkedIn if you haven't. Send us your email. If you are connected, no. then just send us your email and we'll make sure you're you're on the invite. I think this should be a lot of fun, Chris. Yeah, it'll be fun. We'll laugh. We'll cry. It'll be a blast. It'll be awesome. <laughs> anyway, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. And have a great Labor Day weekend. Go, go grill something out. <laughs>